Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I'm Meredith Michael, Production Assistant for Weird Studies. Back in 2019, Phil and JF decided to record an episode about the Netflix docuseries Wild Wild Country, which explores a community founded in Oregon in the early 1980s by a guru named Bhagwan Rajneesh. Built out of news footage from the time, as well as retrospective narrations by many key figures, the series provides a fascinating and multifaceted look into the establishment, prosperity, and ultimate downfall of this community following several legal scandals. For various reasons, your Weird Studies hosts had difficulty recording a conversation that was workable for the show, and after two separate attempts, they archived the footage and moved on to other things. I guess you could say that the topic was untimely. But earlier this year, they gave the recording to me as a special editing project, and its time has now come. It's actually astonishing how well the themes of this conversation follow up on the ideas from recent episodes, despite it being recorded two years ago. It touches on the idea of cultural appropriation, a perfect sequel to the episode on Exotica, and refines the meaning of religion expanding on a discussion begun in the episode on art and artifice. Ultimately, J.F. and Phil arrive at the orientation that culture, art, and religion should have toward the chaotic heart of existence and of human suffering, an idea that I think can be summed up in these immortal words of Westley from the movie The Prince's Bride. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Now might seem an awkward time to bring up the Weird Studies Patreon, which you can subscribe to for one, three, or six dollars a month. But don't worry, Weird Studies isn't going to buy any Rolls Royces, nor are we going to claim to cure your suffering. All we can promise is to continue to be able to produce this podcast, as well as provide patrons with blog posts and bonus podcast episodes every other week including an upcoming exclusive conversation with yours truly. You can also support us by buying books through our bookshop, which can be found at bookshop.org shop slash weird studies. It is updated regularly with lists of all the books referenced on the show, and you won't even have to join a cult to access it. Okay, I hope you enjoy the show. What are we talking about today? Well, we tried to record an episode on this subject before and just gave up because 
didn't quite have the picture all formed as to what what it is we're really talking about. Right. Let me tell you what I think we're not talking about. Okay. I don't think that we are talking about the thing that everybody wanted to talk about when the Netflix docu-series Wild Wild Country came out, which is who's the villain? Who's the villain of the piece? Was it Bhagwan Rajneesh who founded this commune sort of really calling it a commune isn't quite right. It's really a city in eastern Oregon, kind of from nothing, on a huge ranch, like an enormous spread of ranch land in eastern Oregon, about the size of Manhattan, apparently. So that's the premise of the series and the guru around whom this whole community was formed is the Bhagwan Rajneesh. Otherwise known as Osho. Otherwise known as Osho. And the whole thing went pretty badly pear-shaped. And so the question everybody wanted to ask was, well, who's the villain? Was the Bhagwan the villain? Was his right-hand woman his lieutenant? Uh, or for you Canadians, lieutenant, um, <laughs> whose name was Ma Anand Sheila. Right. Was it her? Yeah. Or perhaps was it the townspeople? Were the Rajneeshis more sinned against than sinning? And I think it's one of the strengths of the show is that it did not editorialize unduly. It allowed you to kind of make up your own mind. They were presented things from a number of different perspectives, very strongly held perspectives and very strongly expressed perspectives. But I feel like the series itself managed to leave the viewer with a fair degree of freedom yeah. to ponder what it is they're seeing. And... I feel like actually I was guilty in the first aborted effort to talk about this. I, I was guilty of kind of playing into that. And I realized about halfway through, it's like, no, this isn't really what we wanted to talk about. What we want, what, but, but then, okay, so I've defined it negatively. What we're not talking about, what are we talking about? So my assumptions going in were that we were talking about cults and guruism. In, in a way, I think that's, that is what we're talking about. But yeah. I came at it like you, having just watched Wild Wild Country and just seeing how crazy things got and wanting to put the blame somewhere. And so a lot of our discussion involved whether Osho or his lieutenant, Sheila, were to, was to blame for the travesty, for the horrible, what, what happened in Oregon. And then we were, you know... I guess we were talking about fake religion. I guess we were, I, I was thinking about, yeah, I was just thinking about it in a very tabloidy kind of way. I found, Well, the I difficulty found. is that when you start saying like, who's right and who's wrong in a situation like that, it also gets you almost necessarily talking about what is real religion and what is fake religion? What's the difference between a cult and, and a new religious movement? Well, that's an interesting question. It is, and I think that it's Even if really, no really answer. fraught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really fraught. Yeah, it is. So I think that the best way to introduce this to our listeners would be to talk a little bit about what happened in Oregon, and not to try to summarize the series, but just right. to give a kind of overall view of what happened. So yeah. I'll start, and you can pick up when you, yeah, when you feel absolutely. like it. So the Bhagwan Rajneesh. Bhagwan means what? Teacher, master, something like that. Holy something one. like that. Yeah. yeah. In in it's India. an honorific, I think. Yeah, it's an honorific within the kind of larger kind of yogic tradition in India, or the philosophical tradition. The so Rajneesh was a philosophy professor, 
who was kind of reviled by the the academic world in India at the time. He had a lot of enemies and he, he pissed off a lot of people. Eventually, he kind of presented himself as a teacher, a guru, a spiritual leader, and cultivated quite the following in India. And then he had a temple compound in... Um, Pune. In Pune, right, near, uh, near, near Mumbai. And uh, he had thousands of followers, but he got in trouble with... Um, well, with the Gandhis, you know, with uh, what yeah. was her name? The president. Uh, oh, Indira God. Gandhi? In, yes, with Indira Gandhi. So eventually they they left India. It was the old story, taxes. Yeah. Taxes, Because it's right. just sort of like, are you a, a real religion or are you a fake religion? And if the state is empowered to make that choice, there's a financial consequence of that. If you're a fake religion... Then they get to tax you. If you're a real religion, then they don't. That in itself is a, is a really interesting question. I know. Think about it. So, because they went to Oregon. I know that a lot of states in the I think most states in the U.S. have rules about religious organizations not being taxed. I think it's like that in Canada as well. No, I think it's on the federal level. Right. In the interest of separating church and state, the modern state apparatus has had to define religion. And in a sense, you could probably make an argument that the, the modern idea of cult comes from this need on the state's part to to deem certain religious institutions unworthy of the benefits of being religious institutions. Mm-hmm. So of not being not being deserving of the to be let out of the the tax scheme that is the modern state. So mm. that's an interesting question in itself. But so they were in India and they decided to move to Oregon. So they bought bought up this ranch, moved in there. And pretty soon the community reached, I don't know what the, the peak population was, but it was in the thousands of people were living in this desolate part of Oregon on this ranch. And basically just creating all kinds of trouble for the local population who were mostly kind of conservative Christian Americans who did not and very understand. few of them very few I mean the closest town yeah. is a place called Antelope I right. think population 47 or something like that in the 40s and uh, this becomes a major plot point actually plot point as if this is a fictional story but I mean um yeah, and they felt besieged because, like, it's empty. There's, like, not many people. There's retirees and there's a few ranchers, and that's pretty much it. And then this group of people all wearing identical red robes and mala beads, and many of them sporting what one of the locals called the look, yeah, which is the sort of, like, empty-eyed, blissful expression at all times <laughs> yes. kind of thing. These people showing up en masse, like in a community that you can count easily, like you can remember every single person in your community without having to try very hard. In a community like that, suddenly being besieged by thousands of people who are just such distinct kind of oddball types. Yeah. And they come Um, from a a very different cultural milieu. Like these are, you know, I think with most of them are probably pretty privileged people uh, who were joining this This is an cult. important point yeah. that there's a really strong kind of class yes. angle to this. Yeah. And this is starting back in the Pune ashram days. The main devotees of the Bhagwan were people from Western countries. 
I'm sure there were people from India who were interested in the Bhagwan's well, teachings. Well, it, it started there, but then he saw in the early 70s, saw more and more Americans and Europeans show up. So, yeah. And he saw an opportunity. They're very clear yeah, about and, that. Yeah, that this is a, a marketing opportunity. I mean, this gets to something that is actually quite generally true of new religious movements. You know, there's a kind of common stereotype of quote-unquote cult followers of people in new religious movements that they're unusually credulous and stupid people. Mm -hmm. But actually, they tend to be neophiles. You know, they tend to be the people who temperamentally and also socially have been allowed to follow their inclinations to try new stuff. Yeah. They're the kind of people who you'll see at modern art galleries, at performances of avant-garde music. You know, They're the kind of people who are showing up at Stockhausen's concerts in the 70s. They're the kind of people who would be interested in uh, encounter groups in the 70s, people who would have copies of the Whole Earth Catalog on their shelf, You know, people who were just into new stuff. Usually very well-educated people. Yes. And people who come from, from relatively affluent sectors. Exactly. Yeah. So it's partly temperament, but it's also like, you know, you have to have a certain amount of class status and educational privilege to be a neophile. Yeah. To be someone who's always on, like, trying the new shit. Well, someone and, who can afford to go to India to begin with, you know. For example, talking. yes. Yeah. So these people were showing up with all this money, and the Bhagwan saw a way. I mean, there's two ways of framing that. He, you could see that he was just a kind of cynical shyster who decided to capitalize on the situation. Or you could see it as he saw an avenue for getting his message out. And uh, a new possibility of creating what he wanted to create, which was a new kind of human being. And he used the tools at his disposal to do that. And, you know. It's, and he was pretty honest about it. He was very honest about it. You can't say that he was dissimulating. He was like, I am in favor of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I am in favor of making money. If I can get lots of wealthy Westerners interested in what I'm saying, that is going to help spread the message a lot better than being like Christ and carrying yeah. on his mission among the poor and the leprous. So he at least did not dissimulate that. He's like, yeah, I'm all about the jet set. I'm all about the beautiful people. I'm all about the money. Yeah. You should be about the money. Like you should grab your life with both hands and live the shit out of it. What the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, that is a lot of what he was saying to people. It was. It was. And so, you know, on the one hand, yeah, he was the Rolls Royce guru. He had ended up with 93 Rolls Royces at the height of his prosperity. And there is something a little indecent about the amount of money and adulation he was willing to just hoover up from his willing followers. But then at the same time, you can't exactly say he was bullshitting. No. You, I mean, what you saw is what you got. He wasn't a bullshitter. I, there's a particular talk he gave that I want to get to eventually in this. Hopefully, we'll get to it. I want, I'm just going to read a few parts of it where he lays out exactly what's going on very lucidly. But I want to save that because I think we should just... Maybe, maybe narrate some of the crazier things that exactly. happen once, the, Why did, once yeah. the Rajneeshis show up in eastern Oregon. Yeah. Before watching Wild Wild Country, I knew about, obviously knew about Osho. I'd read a few of his books. I'd always liked Osho. 
because he was irreverent and he was modern in his way of approaching things. He was well-versed in Western philosophy as well as Eastern philosophy. He was just an admirable intellect, I thought. But I knew that shit had gone south. I knew they had tried to poison the local people in order to steer a particularly important county vote that they wanted to win because they tried to take over the county. I knew about that. I didn't know a lot of the other stuff. I didn't know that in order to amass enough votes to take over the county, because the commune incorporated itself as a municipality, in order to, to win this county vote, they, <laughs> they sent people across the country to pick up thousands of homeless people, mostly homeless men, and to bring them to the commune and feed them and clothe them and help them so that they would have just these numbers that they could send these guys out to vote for. And, and this infuriated the local population, first of all, yeah, for all the reasons you'd expect. And that's just one particular instance, the whole voting thing. I mean, it was crazy. But that's it, a crazy story. A national campaign to import homeless people in yeah. order to jerry-rig a vote. Yeah. And it gets crazier because then we're importing all these homeless men with who knows what kind of substance abuse problems, mental health problems, environmental trauma, and we're going to have thousands of them in this pretty small space. What could go wrong? Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. violent things started happening. And so they started putting tranquilizers in the beer that they served these guys. Yeah. So they started drugging their homeless people on a massive scale in order to just kind of cool them out. Yes. That's fucking crazy. That's it's absolutely crazy. It's fucking crazy. It got really nuts. So there's a moment at the very beginning, which I found really interesting, where I think he was the former attorney general at the time, or one of the people who worked very closely with the former attorney general, who says, we were doing God's work. So from the mm. beginning, subtly, the filmmakers have framed this as a kind of religious war. Um, yeah. The feds were allied with the locals under the banner of ultimately Christianity, Christian values, Christian morals mm. against this Eastern invasion of this new kind of guruistic culty way of thinking from the East, this foreign invasion. And it's all very subtle. The, the, the filmmakers don't tell you any of this. It's just the way that it feels when you're watching it. Yeah. And so the power dynamics are interesting. It has to do with religion and class and the way those things cross-cut one another in right. ways that it's actually pretty unusual to hear anybody talk about in a remotely intelligent way. I, I mean, I think that religion so often gets demagogued one way or the other by, I mean, of course, everybody can think of examples of, you know, Christian fundamentalists who are loud-mouthing their faith, but, you know, also... Uh, secularists who want to talk about religion in very flat and unsophisticated ways mm -hmm. and in ways often that will, because we do live in a secular society, even the, in the United States, even, you know, where I live, which is for all intents and purposes in the near South, there's a lot of um, public religion, public Protestantism. And yet at the same time, in a weird way, in the intellectual organs of this country, in the organs of opinion, newspapers and places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or 
you know, the kind of center to center left organs of public opinion that really kind of set the intellectual tone here. Religion is, to some extent, not talked about in ways that fully integrate it with all the other things that determine your class status, your position in this society. Yeah. But, you know, looking at religion and class kind of at the same time and as interdependent parts of a whole, an entire dynamic that was playing out in Eastern Oregon in the uh, early 1980s, that is something that this film does with sophistication and with a light touch. Yeah. And that is one of the things that is, makes it really unusual. Yes, that's so true. And it, it's, uh, yeah, it's worth thinking about class in the context of religion. Because a lot of secular people don't like religion, obviously. And the way that they criticize religion is usually by accusing those who choose to follow a religion of being naive, mm -hmm. of mistaking the symbol for the thing. So people who are spiritual, not religious, are people who say that they understand the meaning of the religion so they don't need the religions. That's basically the, what it boils down to when you have conversations with people. Often. I mean, I was thought like that for a very, very long time. I don't think like that anymore for various reasons. But, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's a kind of perennialist thing. That it's, kind of, it's really all over the place. And if we were to include this kind of perennial spiritualism in our definition of religion, then we cease to be a secular society. Because most people, I think, will either be in a religion or spiritual in that sense. Even people who are diehard materialists, like Richard Dawkins, if you read his book, what's it called again? The God Delusion? Yeah. Yeah. The, the classic, I've never read it. Yeah. I read it a long time ago. Uh, it's a very spiritual book. Sam Harris is a very spiritual person. There is no conflict between science and spirituality at all. The conflict is between spirituality and religion. And I find that if you insert the class filter, if you look at mm -hmm. things with that filter on, things start to reveal themselves. Spiritualism is something of the upper echelons. Yeah. It's something the that Brahmins. belongs to the Brahmins. Yeah. Religion is for the, the masses. And a mm -hmm. critique of religion is a class-based critique, I think, mm -hmm. ultimately. I think so, too. Yeah. So we're talking about class and we're talking about education. We're talking about access to knowledge and we're talking about capacity of the few to seek out new things and new ways of expression and all that stuff. Like the neophilia you just talked about. It's clear that class doesn't mean what it meant in the industrial age. Yeah. At the very least, Pierre Bourdieu's idea of cultural capital is one of those ideas that has fully migrated from the ivory tower to people generally. And very briefly, Bourdieu's idea is basically it's a sociology of taste, that tastes, the reasons that people have for liking some things and not others, that those have everything to do with class. And so it can be actually a very deterministic system. I mean, when I'm reading Bourdieu, I always have this feeling of being in this kind of iron cage that brooks no escape, because the way Bourdieu pursues his ideas suggests 
something very totalizing, that everything you like, you like because of your class position. I remember particularly, he has a chart where he's pointing out like the, the correspondence, very robust correspondence among his French, I guess, interview subjects, the people he canvassed. Uh, you know, things like the like Bach's Art of the Fugue is going to be something that is going to be exclusively allied with elite, university-educated classes. You know, certain other pieces of music, things that we think of as being, you know, much more popular, associated with other classes. But it gets super complicated because you also have the spectacle of Brooklyn Trustafarians, kids who come from money, who are total hipsters, who affect a passion for Pops Blue Ribbon and wear trucker hats. Actually, these are hipsters of maybe a decade or so ago. The style has doubtless changed. But the affectation of demotic style, of mm -hmm. the style of the working classes, that too is a pretty old story. This is something that goes back certainly through the history of countercultures. You know, think about the prevalence of blue jeans. Now is a very obviously very widespread it's not even a fashion statement. This is just like a fashion staple. It's just what people wear, right? It's right. a standard casual thing. You're not making a statement if you wear blue jeans. But it's easy to forget that blue jeans in the 1960s were associated with, you know, like truck drivers and yeah. ranch hands and oil workers, people who had rough blue-collar jobs, people who worked with their hands. And it was you know, hippies, countercultural types who were wearing blue jeans as a kind of token. what is now, yeah. yeah, as a pretty, as a token of their... Their rejection of the social order, their fundamental questions about the exactly. le legitimacy of the ringing order. What happens, and there's an excellent book by a Canadian music journalist named Carl Wilson, part of the Continuum 33 and a Third series, which is a series of short books, each of which is dedicated to a single classic album of popular music. And his is dedicated to Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love, which is a mega hit of late 90s pop. One of the most wide-selling albums in the world ever in history. And uh, like Elvis levels of popularity. Right. right? And he says right at the beginning, I don't like Celine Dion. Celine Dion is a big joke in the circles that I run in. For people that I hang out with, indie, rock, hipster types who write for things like Now magazine in Toronto uh, yeah. or, or whatever, people who are well, writing independent. The Village Voice. Yeah. Or Village Voice, stuff like that. Celine Dion is a punchline. You know, and he's talking about his history with Celine Dion back in the 90s where like he and all of his friends really loved Elliot Smith and so he starts off talking about Elliot Smith on the one hand as the archetype of the indie rock crit hipster music of choice and as he develops the idea he starts saying well you know what is upper class the cultural style that is actually the most high value. And to return to Pierre Bourdieu, he's sort of updating Bourdieu and saying it's no longer individual things like the art of the fugue associated with super intellectual, high-end, rich people. He's like, it's actually not individual tokens of culture, uh, of cultural belonging. It's a cognitive style 
that is able to appropriate different elements of culture and mix and match them in various kind of culturally interesting ways to create a kind of cultural bricolage. Yeah. A kind of a little so, mini ethos or like a, an, yeah. a cultural ecology that you create. Like the, right. Because you look at the hipsterism is a good example. The way it started in Brooklyn and then spread. I was in Montreal in, from 2006 to 2008 and it was like – I remember once I went to a show. A, my friends had a band. They had a, a show somewhere in the Mile End in Montreal, which is the hipster area. And I went there and a girl told me that she knew I wasn't from around there. And I said, well, I live in Outremont, which is like just down the street. It's like, yeah, but mm-hmm. I knew I know you don't live in my land because your jeans aren't tight enough. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, was, seriously, she said that. And she was I, I, I still don't know to this day whether she was being ironic or not, because one of the things about hipsterism is that. Irony pushes into sincerity and back into irony in a very strange way. And it's very hard if you're not part of the scene to decode what's happening around you. Yes. And it's the ability to decode that is that cultural style that marks you as being a high class individual. Exactly. Exactly. It's. Wilson has a line. It's being able to declaim Homer in the voice of Homer Simpson. Right. It's the ability to code switch. It's the ability not, not, it's no longer just sort of like, hey, I'm countercultural, so I'm wearing blue jeans, and that's the signal that I'm hip. It's now the ability to take signifiers like that, style signifiers like that, and mix and match them in varying degrees of sincerity and irony in such a way that is extremely difficult to learn. Let's take this back into our discussion of religion. If I were to opine on this phenomenon of the kind of upper class spiritualism, let's call it, Mm -hmm. spiritual, not religious school of thought, Mm -hmm. my general opinion would be that it's an attempt to get something without paying for it. It's an attempt to profit off of something that's being developed, that's coming out of the furnace of suffering without any of the suffering, without taking on any of the suffering that was necessary in the generation of this way of thinking. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, let me take it back to the Rajneesh business. So, what are these people getting from the Bhagwan Rajneesh. What is the Bhagwan Rajneesh's teaching? The Bhagwan was a preacher of freedom, right? He preached release from history, release from religion, release from archaic codes, release ultimately from morality. And he was preaching access to joy, access to pleasure, access to life. He was relieving his followers of the burden of guilt. That's what he was doing. That's what I get from it. And the fact that his followers were members of the, let's call them the ironic classes, the people who can afford to play, the people Mm. who can afford to experiment, the people who can afford to explore, and the people who choose often to explore forms of life or anthropotechnical kind of technologies, anthropotechnologies that are rooted in real need and real suffering. They can play with those and appropriate them. I think that what the Rajneesh was doing was 
allowing these people to enjoy their privilege, to enjoy their power guilt-free. I think ultimately mm-hmm. that's what's going on in this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the content of the spiritual teachings that form these new religions come from places that are very foreign to the class that appropriates these religions or that participates in them. Yeah, so for that reason, I agree that you can't separate class from this kind of phenomenon. That's really interesting. I've got a couple of thoughts pivoting off of that. First of all, what you just said, that it's taking things from religions that have been forged in the furnaces of suffering. Yeah. But but it's a kind of appropriation of those things minus the furnaces and minus the suffering, minus that context of hard lives in which religion is not uh, a trivial matter. Right. It reminds me of a phrase in the African-American vernacular about white people who really love black music, that white people will take everything but the burden. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar to what you're saying to the critique of cultural appropriation. And I have to say, by way of, uh, I don't know, a warning <laughs> or, or coming clean, I, for the most part, find the idea and expression, cultural appropriation, to be massively unhelpful. I think it has led to an enormous amount of cultural policing of the most ignorant and um, bullying variety. It's led to a kind of weird backdoor racism where, I mean, there was one one of the many kind of idiot crusades that you see on campus. Latinx activists who started bullying white girls for wearing hoop earrings Because they said that's cultural appropriation, that that's something that um, Latina women do. They wear hoop earrings. And if a white girl is doing it, then that's like appropriating the style doesn't belong to you. I find most of those kinds of so-called critiques. Notice how people try to dress up just like mean spirited shit that they say as quote unquote critique. Yeah, Uh, I fucking hate that. I find that kind of stuff like radically unhelpful. And a lot of it just turns into like stick with your own kind. It's just like, yeah, I'm sure Donald Trump would strongly agree with that sentiment. Yeah, the races shouldn't mix. A lot of the strictures against cultural appropriation really come down to strictures against learning from people who are unlike yourself. But I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. And I'm also not saying that the idea to which that unfortunate expression, cultural appropriation pertains, I'm not saying that that idea is entirely invalid because there is something about taking what there is of an experience. Like ideas are not purely fungible. You can't just strip them away from the lived contexts in which they occur. But that is precisely what this high-end elite sort of cognitive style, this code switching style, this mix and match style, that is precisely what it always does. And so this kind of like reading Homer in the voice of Homer Simpson thing, the spiritual, not religious style is basically that 
cultural approach, that approach of like bricolage, yeah. applied to religion. But yeah. the problem is that, you know, religions are lived forms ex- experience. And so when you're performing that kind of bricolage, you are necessarily changing what it is. Maybe what you make is beautiful. Maybe, you know, the Rajneesh's, um community and his ideas are are beautiful but like you have to acknowledge that that is what is going on and that spirituality isn't just religion minus the bullshit and superstition spirituality is its own thing and it is a kind of a deracinated decontextualized thing yeah and that's got its own problems exactly there's a difference between cultural appropriation i i have problems with that term too because it it casts too big a net is it cultural appropriation for someone to open up a yoga studio in Toronto yeah. and teach yoga to white people? No. Uh, yes. Maybe. I don't know. Like if you if cultural dialogue or cultural exchange is always a cultural appropriation, then we have a problem. However, I do have a major problem with another phenomenon that I think people mistake for cultural appropriation, which is cultural commodification. And Mm. cultural commodification is a transformation of a cultural element, a cultural meme, a a cultural uh, phenomenon into a commodity. And that's exactly what's happening in this spiritual, not religious thing, I think. It's a commodification of religion. So you'll have people, I'm spiritual, not religious. They go to some, a new age convention and they buy a book on Zen and they'll buy a book, uh, you know, they'll buy some crystals and they'll buy some, some Wiccan, uh, I don't know. They'll buy, they'll buy like a Native American dream catcher <laughs> right. and they'll, yeah, it's, it's mix and match. It's one thing to appropriate something and to live with uh, the cost of that appropriation. Like conversion is a major thing. Like you could have someone convert to Islam and it's not cultural appropriation, that's conversion. But it's another thing to take little bits and pieces of things and to transform them into your own private cultural mix. Because things that exist in a mix, all the elements that compose a mix, I'm referring here mix in the sense of mix culture and like this kind of media mixing and, and, and mishmashing. Everything that exists in a mix is a discrete element that constellates with all the others to form a kind of new thing, a new style, a new way of being. So there's a necessary stage in the process by which an element from a particular culture becomes part of a mix. There's a necessary stage in there where it needs to become commodified in the Marxist sense. It needs to become a discrete object. It needs to become what Marx calls a fetish. And then it can be part of a mix. Then the Pabst Blue Ribbon isn't just, you take it out of its cultural nexus, and then all of a sudden it's part of an ethos where it is its own signifier and a network of signifiers that means something that has nothing to do with the world that that Pabst Blue Ribbon can comes from. So, okay, so we agree that class is a big deal. We agree that 
there's an asymmetry in the critique of religion that pervades the air we breathe right now. We mm-hmm. agree that we can't separate out what happened in Oregon in the 80s with the Bhagwan Rajneesh from a certain class struggle that exists in the U.S. Almost entirely unacknowledged because Americans like to believe that they live in a classless society. Right. Exactly. Ha, ha, ha. And I, I mean, that's that's one of my big problems with a lot of the what's the, what the left is up to these days. And I, I am, for the record, I am a man of the left, uh, is that it forgets about class too often, I find. You know, a lot of the things the left will say in the name of equality or in the name of inclusivity or whatever is often expressing a certain classism that I think we need to think a little bit more about. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and it bears out in, for example, like the assumption of American progressives that evangelical Christians are all a bunch of gap tooth hicks. Right. Like all of them uh, just, you know, fell off the turnip truck. Oh, you're going to entrust the running of this country to those losers? I find that kind of strain of kind of class triumphalism very disturbing to hear. And I hear it all the time. I mean, God, it goes unchecked in academia. I shouldn't go off on academia, but I mean, like, you hear that shit all the time. I was just at a party recently where there was a... It was mostly academics, and there was somebody talking about how Bloomington isn't so bad. I mean, she's been here for decades, and Bloomington isn't so bad here. The people who work at the gas stations at least have more teeth now than they used to. Mm. Shit like that. And these are all people of unimpeachable progressive credentials, um, but uh, they're not really interrogating their own class assumptions. Yeah, and and in my own experience... I work in the the TV industry up here in Canada, and I mean, how many times have I heard stuff about Catholics, you know, and I, you know, nobody knows that. I mean, the only people who know that I'm a Catholic of a sort is the people who listen to our show, which I guess is quite a few now, (laughs) but, but I'm careful. I don't tell this to people because first of all, I know they'll misunderstand because if I were Mm. to lay out what I believe, I wouldn't sound like what one would associate with the word Catholic at all. But another reason is because in French Canada, to say you're Catholic is, it's a, it's dangerous. You know, there is a profound, deep, and well, very justified anti-clericalism here that, um, but I mean, I've sat at many a dinner table and heard people start talking about the Catholic church and had to kind of just bite my lip and because I, I yeah. well, I'm not going to defend it. I mean, it's a lot of what they're criticizing is indefensible. But well, it's like the, the abuse scandals and all that. Well, yeah, and then it's the problems of the institution. But then they just see anyone who would be part of that institution, who would follow it, who would even give it a moment's thought, mm-hmm. is hopelessly naive and deluded, and must be uneducated and stupid. Whereas I'm not uneducated and stupid. Hmm. So the point is that I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, my experience is a bit different, which is, you know, I was, I guess, nominally Christian when I was young and then decidedly stopped being really observant of any kind of religion for decades and became a convert Buddhist. Now, in my world, which is an academic world, there are anxieties that tend to group around uses and expressions and representations of culture. And the anxiety over cultural appropriation is one particularly noticeable example of that. And so when I've talked to people about being a Zen Buddhist, 
usually people are pretty polite about it. I think that Buddhism gets, to some extent, an undeserved pass from people. People seem to assume that Buddhists are automatically nice. I can tell you, as a fact, that's not true. Um, (laughs) Certainly not true in my case. Aside from that, though, there is a certain discomfort that people have with the fact that I'm a white dude. I'm an Anglo guy who became a Zen Buddhist. There is the belief, first of all, that Zen Buddhism is uh, strictly a Japanese thing. Whereas, you know, at this point, there is something called American Zen that is, or Western Zen. That's a thing. Zen has existed in Not the Not only West. that, but I mean, Buddha was Indian. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so boom. What, yeah. uh, what the fuck? Yeah. But uh, so, you know, people tend to underestimate how much Zen has, just as Christianity and Islam and all the, all the name brand religions have adapted in multifarious ways as they've been seeded throughout the world. So like, you know, Brazilian Catholicism isn't going to be quite the same as French Catholicism, but we don't think of one as the appropriation of the other. We just think of them as different branches of the church. You can see the same phenomenon happening in Zen Buddhism. It's just that the historical roots are much shallower, that the transmission of Zen to the West is really less than a century old. But Even leaving that aside, I think sometimes the sort of anxiety of cultural appropriation is coming from a good place. And it's funny, I just recently had this experience. So like I'm teaching this summer and I'm teaching a class called Music Since 1960. And one of the days we were talking about John Cage and John Cage's ideas of music were heavily conditioned by his Zen Buddhism. He became a Zen Buddhist of a sort in the 1950s. Exactly how much of a Buddhist he was is sort of, I don't know, people disagree on that. He didn't meditate, and he liked to say that his composition was his practice, which, okay, you know, I'm not going to doubt his sincerity. But one of my students, I have my students keep journals, and I'm um, like online journals that I can read. And one of them was, you know, pretty bluntly saying like, okay, so to what degree is, are we comfortable with John Cage as somebody who is... um, seeking sanction for his artistic practice by appealing to this non-Western spiritual form and sort of playing with it in that sort of ironized, not ironic in the sense of like, you know, as if, but like in the sense of like, I've used the word play and I really like that. That if you're playing with something, you can't afford to be entirely serious about it because the spirit of play, you have to hold things lightly. And that's that spirit of lightness or levity that is, I think, an ironic spirit where you're treating things in an as-if kind of way or a heuristic way in order to have a certain kind of playful experience. And, you know, I think you can make a pretty decent argument that John Cage was doing that, was playing with Zen Buddhism. He was not an orthodox Zen Buddhist in the way that my old teacher, Shahaka Okamura, is a, is a serious Zen Buddhist. And so, yeah, that's an interesting question. Is there something disrespectful or is there something that's kind of a little bit off or funny about somebody doing this? And I thought about how to respond to it. I wrote as a response in her journal where I said, you know, People will pick up religions for all kinds of reasons, and it is understood in the Zen tradition, and has been for centuries and centuries, that you need something to get you on the path. This is called the arousing of the Bodhi mind, right? right? But it's acknowledged and has been for time out of mind that whatever your motivation that gets you on the Bodhi path is almost certainly kind of delusional, 
Yeah. Like, if your goal is to just sit in this pure sort of Zen way, shikantaza, just sitting, you're sitting without thought of gain. Gaining mind is anathema. We talked a lot about this in our Pauline Oliveris episode, and especially in the Patreon extra that we did for that. But if you are deciding you're going to be a Zen Buddhist, you have to have a gaining mind of some sort. There has to be something in it for you. And so to get your ass on the cushion the first time, you almost certainly are going to have some idea like, oh, I'm going to become an enlightened being, or I'm going to meditate and become like uh, healthier and less stressful. Or for that matter, I'm going to sit in a Zen temple and I'll be this really cool guy who's just down with this mysterious Asian culture. I'm going to be a mysterious dude who's down with mysterious Asian things. Exotic. Exotic. I'm an exotic kind of dude. And this shit is exotic. You can have, in other words, aesthetic reasons that get your ass down on that cushion the first time. But basically what I wrote to my student was, the thing is, though, that the arousing of the Bodhi mind, I didn't actually put it in these sort of more religious terms, but like the question is not what gets you into the thing. The question is what you do once you're there. And that really pertains to the religion side rather than the spirituality side. And spirituality is, you know, you're making a play of religious signifiers in something like the way that a Brooklyn hipster is making a play of like class signifiers of like the trucker caps and the Paps Blue Ribbon, but also my super sophisticated taste in indie pop of Elliot Smith or whatever. And I don't listen to Celine Dion unless I listen to her ironically, right? And yet, if you stick around, you know, you go through all these different phases. Maybe you go through your trying to be more Catholic than the Pope phase. You're trying to be the very best Zen boy ever, which God knows I went through that phase too. And then maybe you'll go through an apostate phase where you're like, you know what? Fuck this noise. I'm a free citizen. I'm a modern individual. I get to choose things and I don't have to hang around and be chained down to some outmoded superstition. You can have that kind of modern secular mind too. You can go through that kind of phase. Now, obviously, I'm talking about myself because I've gone through all of these different phases. But where I'm at right now is just sort of like, you know, Zen Buddhism is sort of like the it's the thing that won't go away. Right. Uh, It's it's the unflushable turd, which I realize sounds terrible and blasphemous. But keep in mind one Zen saying that the Buddha is a dried shit stick. Right. You know, that's a very Zen thing to say. People think Zen means all pieced out, blissed out, and so on. But Zen can also mean, like, pretty raunchy humor. Yeah. I've been at it long enough now that Zen is the unflushable turd. It's just it doesn't matter how many wrong ideas I've had. The thing is, I've become religious. And I've become religious in this very specific way. If you think about the etymology of the term religion, one of the most widely bandied about etymology, I don't know if it's true, is that it's uh, from the Latin religare, to tie back or to bind. The difference between religion and spirituality, in spirituality, you are free to go. You're free to make up your own mind. You're free to mix and match. You're free. You are an individual. You get to choose. 
If you're in a religion, you don't get to choose. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily in this iron-bound authoritarian world where you just have to blindly follow whatever your priest is saying. Clearly, you're a religious dude who's not that kind of religious dude. But to me, a religion is sort of like a, it's like a song you can't get out of your head. It's like a riddle you can't figure out. It's something that won't leave you alone. And ultimately, you're not choosing it. Right. You're married to this thing. And now you're tied to it. You're bound to it. You know, you were bound back to this thing. And now what? You, now you have to find out what that means in your life. You have to harmonize it with your life. But you are on the hook for this thing. And so ultimately, I would say, like, you can start off with some culturally appropriative idea that's gonna get you interested in some Asian religion or a religion that was originally Asian in its origin. But the longer you keep at it, the more you're in it, the deeper you marinate in it, the more it shifts from spirituality, which can be very appropriative, to religion. And it becomes heavier, it becomes harder, more difficult, but it also lighter in some ways. I'm not expressing this well at all, but long story short, it's not how you start, it's how you continue. That's what right. I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it'd be possible. I think many people become religious without adhering to any particular religion. You become religious when you realize when the question of existence stops being a question of play and exploration and becomes a question of life and death. Yes. You know, there's no more uh, cynical irony when you're faced with the question of life and death, or at least cynicism and irony gain a new kind of meaning in that context. When you realize that the questions that you're playing with are dead serious. I mean, one of my favorite religious people today is Thomas Ligotti. I, I think he's truly a religious writer, not a spiritual writer. He's a religious writer because everything he writes has to do with this religare, this binding together of the whole thing into a picture of life, into an image of life, even though he rejects all particular religions. He's religious in the deepest and the only really important sense of the word. Religion involves suffering, just like true art as opposed to artifice or like the bad art that we kind of swim in. The difference is that, as Leslie put it, my wife, she said, the artist is the one who includes pain in his play. That's what she said. Nice. And uh, it was in the context of a wider discussion. What I mean is that the real art comes from that furnace of suffering. This is not a, to say, oh, uh, you know, oh, the artists are the ones that suffer. We all fucking suffer. Yeah. You know, the first dictum of Buddhism is life is suffering, mm -hmm. existence suffering. This is not a uh, something you can question. You only question it to the degree that you want to avoid it. And a religious attitude is an attitude that engages with this truth, that doesn't try to push it away anymore, doesn't try to dance around it anymore. And that's where spirituality gives way to religion, which brings me back to our discussion, which is about Wabal country and the Bhagwan Rajneesh and his teaching, because I totally agree with what you just said about, you know, I think that there are tons of Rajneeshis or sannyasins, as they call themselves, who joined this group and did amazing stuff with it and went on to become 
to to become to become something interesting to do interesting things in yeah. the world to do valuable and important things in the world. One of them is Peter Sloterdijk was a sannyasin. Right? Yes, in the late seventies, who never renounced. So far as I know, never renounced the no why the would ideas he? that he and you can kind of see and it's for example his interest in anthropotechnics. I'm like that's that's Osho. Yeah. Osho was like fascinated by anthropotechnics. He didn't call them that, but that was almost his trademark. That gets me to my point. These new religious movements, of which I think Osho's movement is probably one of the most successful and the most effective. These new religions, I think Scientology is another one. They differ from the old religions in the sense that they don't teach you a truth or a revelation or a secret. They teach you techniques. And they are anthropotechnical systems. Yeah. And what Osho was teaching his disciples was a set of tools by which they could create themselves. And the human who creates himself in Osho's vision, and this is a vision he shares with lots of other movements. I mean, we talked about this in the, the episode we did on the net, is the human who creates themselves or the humans who create themselves are the new humans, the planetary humans, the humans who transcend history, the humans who will create the future, the new world, the new order that's coming on the horizon. And those who are part of these movements proclaim themselves as the pioneers of this new world this new cosmic consciousness, this new way of being. So we could look at this whole wild, wild country, Bhagwan Rajneesh phenomenon in the context of this global, but mostly Western drive to planetization, to, mm. to the creation of a planetary culture. Mm. And this got me thinking this morning, and I was thinking about Slavoj Žižek's critique of a Western appropriation of Eastern spiritual movements, which is that these movements are reframed here in a way that licenses, condones, and allows for a global universal proliferation of neoliberal thought and of capitalism. Mm -hmm. These are anti-moral movements that allow for allow you to enjoy what from a traditional Marxist perspective would be seen as grossly unjust to enjoy those things because morality is an illusion. So you get to take all the pleasure and you don't have to deal with any of the suffering because any suffering indicates that you're not there yet. You're not awake. Suffering is basically a sleep state that people live in, a kind of somnambulistic dream. Right. Yeah. And when you wake up, guilt disappears. And all of a sudden, you can have 93 Rolls Royces. You can be a successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur. You can do whatever you want because guilt is always illusory. Mm. Whereas Marx's critique comes from a much more religious, old-fashioned maybe, or maybe it's an obsolete or archaic mode of thinking, which is rooted in the idea of if you adjust yourself to injustice, you're making a mistake. Marx's vision is more archaic in the sense that it seems to embrace a kind of original sin. That any argument you come up with that allows you to keep on doing what you're doing is ultimately a way for you to license injustice. That's the role of the superstructure in vulgar Marxism. The superstructure that we call culture is a way to validate and justify an unjust system. So Zizek's critique is, I mean, I take it for what it's worth. There's a big grain of salt in there. But um, I feel like there's one possible one. Well, there's a little problem here, which is I think that it is very common to find people who do, in fact, think exactly 
what you just attributed to to Zizek. I think that people can use Buddhism. Uh, he particularly targets Buddhism. People can use Buddhism as an excuse to deny suffering. The idea of enlightenment, for example, or of, of awakening. It's just like, oh, well, suffering is a mistake or suffering is a choice. That's something you actually often hear. Pain is given, but suffering is a choice, something like that. But at the same time, I think it's a perennial temptation, but I think it's also perennially like wrong. I think no, it's- I agree with that. I totally agree with you there. That's the difference between the spirituality that we're talking about and the religion. So when, when Zen becomes religion in the West, in the, in the life of a Western individual, it fails to justify things. It fails to play this role. It's this, it, the problem isn't with Buddhism. The problem is with this kind of deracinated spirituality. That's the problem. Yeah. And it's taking things from all over the place. I mean, you, you look at um, the mega churches in the American South, like those, those uh, prosperity churches. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. The neoliberal ideology will take on all kinds of spiritual garb that, it, you know, it, it, yeah. it will it, to justify itself. Yeah. I, I think there's like valid critique there, but that's not where I wanted to go. I'm trying to talk about what OSHA was bringing to Oregon, regardless mm-hmm. of what his intentions were. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this in the context of the transition between, you know, William Burroughs famously or I don't know if it's famously, but William Burroughs came up with this idea of control, right? It's the kind of the central idea in his work that we're moving towards a system of absolute control, that our culture is becoming a culture of control. And uh, Foucault and Deleuze picked that up. Again, Deleuze wrote towards the end of his career a piece called Postscript on the Societies of Control, where he talks about how we're moving out of the disciplinary societies that Foucault studied very closely, societies that were based on containment and closure, the containment of masses of people in different environments, the hospital, the prison, the school, etc., moving away from that into a society of rhizomatic flows of control, where basically each individual becomes an element and a kind of algorithmic system whose permutations are predetermined ahead of time. So that Mm -hmm. it's not so much of you're doing something wrong and therefore getting punished for it anymore, is that you can't do something wrong. You're just flowing along, you know, just going on these predetermined... um, channels that already preclude any kind of um, transgression, right? So you can interpret these new religious movements in light of this, this coming of the society of control, the society of the new man, the society that the CIA was dreaming up with mystics in California in the, in the 60s, as we were talking about. Oh, in the, is, um, oh, when we were talking about the net, yeah. Yeah. So there is this, uh, this speech that I read, this uh, lecture that Osho gave. He, he basically starts by saying, here I would like to say something which I've been keeping a secret my whole life. And this is it. He says, Buddha declared before his death that he would be coming again after 25 centuries and that his name would be Maitreya. Maitreya means the friend. Buddhas don't come back. No enlightened person ever comes back. So this was just a way of talking. What he meant was that the ancient relationship between the master and the disciple would become irrelevant in 25 centuries. It was his clarity of perception. He was not predicting anything, just his clarity to see that as things are changing, as they have changed in the past and as they go on changing, 
it would take at least 25 centuries for the master and disciple relationship to become out of date. Then the enlightened master would be only the friend. He says, he goes on and later he says, it is time that I should say to you that now many of you are ready to accept me as the friend. Those who are in tune with me continuously without any break are the only real friends. So he's reframing the, the master-disciple relationship in terms of friendship. I am not your master, I'm your friend. And this, you can see this everywhere in our culture today. Look at the typical Silicon Valley CEO, where he doesn't come to you wearing a suit and tie out in a Cadillac, you know, like with a cigar. He dresses in a t-shirt and shorts and he's, you know, talks like everyone else and he likes to barbecue with his buddies. But it's the idea that they present themselves as equals. Mm -hmm. I think Deleuze would interpret this as a move from discipline to control. If I'm your master, you have to obey me. I have the secrets. I impart my teaching in accordance with your merit in my mind. So you deserve this part. You know, the old, I, the old yogic method, the yogi imparts the teaching progressively when you're ready to get the next bit. The right. friend gives you everything and it's up to you then to remain within the friendship, to, or to deserve the friendship. And what's going on on Facebook, the word friend doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean, right? Aristotle's idea of philia, friendship, was based on a relationship between equals, mutual benefit, and of uh, a profound liking of the other. Whereas what we see in, on Facebook is, is friend turned into a, a, an activity, a verb. You friend someone or you mm. unfriend them. Mm. Someone can be a friend one day and not a friend the next. You're friends with people for different reasons. And, you know, this maybe has always been true. But the word friend gains this new, um, it doesn't imply anything anymore. And you can see this in what Osho says next. He says, there are people who are sometimes in tune with me and sometimes not in tune with me. You are asking why it happens. The reason is, perhaps you may be surprised to know, sometimes they are in tune with me because I am in tune with them, because whatever I am saying is in accordance with them. They feel this is perfectly right. They are not in tune with me. On the contrary, they feel they are in tune with me only because I am fulfilling some of their ideas, some of their expectations. That is illusion. Once you are really in tune with me, you cannot fall out of it. But if someone falls out of it, that simply means that I have said something, I have done something, which is not in accordance with you. You remain the judge. You have not dropped judgment. Your ego is still there. When you feel that I am saying something which fulfills your expectations, you are with me. Your heart is beating with me. You are in tune with me. No, he says. Please forgive me for being straightforward. Only I am with you. Soon something happens, I say something, I do something, and your heart is no longer beating with me. So remember one thing, when you are with me, then it is a continuum without any gap. What I say, what I do doesn't matter because you are not a judge. You love me the way I am. I don't judge you. I love you the way you are. And if it changes, then remember it is a judgment. And rather than going with me, you are trying to drag me with you. And that is not very loving. I can come with you, but you are in darkness, and you will lead me in darkness. I have no trouble in coming with you. You cannot destroy my light. I can destroy your darkness. I cannot lose anything by coming with you. You will have to lose many things by coming with me. And when you love someone, you are ready to lose anything, everything, even yourself. The moment you are ready to lose yourself, the friendship is complete, and then there is great beauty. It is exactly 25 centuries after Buddha's death that I am changing the name of the foundation so that it becomes Rajneesh Friends Foundation. It is not only 
just a change of the name. It is going to change the very flavor of our movement. And you have to rise up so that what I want the movement to become, it becomes so that the dream is realized. Don't let me down. So you can see how he what he does in there is he deactivates the idea of master and disciple and reframes it in terms of friends. But then his version of friendship is as asymmetrical as you could dream. Right. It's basically he is always right. And you are you are at one with him to the extent that you agree with whatever he does. Mm -hmm. There are no conditions to what he can do. You have to accept him as he is, no matter what, or else. And you can, you, you know, what I'm ta talking about yeah, the switch from discipline this is, to control. This is, this is a kind of thing where it's just sort of like it seems to be granting a greater degree of liberty. But when you really think about it, it's just like, OK, if you thought the master disciple relationship was strict. Yeah. Wait till your friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've experienced that. I work with people. I'm a freelancer, so I've had producers I've worked with who became friends and things become infinitely more complex when yeah. they stop being masters and they become friends. It's totally true. And this is exactly what Facebook is about. It creates bonds of friendship. It's really, it's even Twitter. Even on Twitter, it's hard to unfollow someone, right? Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, I do it and I'm like, I hope they don't notice. Um, <laughs> and when you lose followers and you're like, well, what, what did I say? But on Facebook, it's a, it's a whole other level. These are mm. friends. Why did they choose that word? It's the worst word they could have chosen, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense to choose that word in light of what I just read. This yeah. is the ethos of control that we live under now. And these movements need to be evaluated, I think, and explored and defined within the context of this larger change from discipline to control, which I think is real. I think Burroughs was right to see that. Mm. But you know what breaks the system? What? The system of control? What? Suffering. It does, yeah. I got a little passage I want to read. Okay. This is from a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which is an absolutely god-awful title that I hate. It's by a guy named Daniel Ingram. What's remarkable about the book is actually how much extraordinarily detailed technical information there is on states and stages of meditation, all the gearhead stuff that tends to be not written down, or very openly discussed, because to openly discuss them, you have to say sort of where you are in a developmental system. And most Buddhist schools have tended to be fairly circumspect about talking about these things generally. Maybe you'll talk to your teacher behind closed doors about this stuff, but you're not going to say it to the whole, like, the whole assembly. Right. And so in a way, this book was kind of remarkable for doing something that has actually become much more commonplace now is establishing the idea of what, what uh, Ingram calls pragmatic dharma, the idea that you're trying to attain certain things. There are techniques by which you can attain those things. Why the fuck wouldn't you try to attain those things? I have uh, long had like very divided feelings about this book, but I think on balance and especially in its revised version, 
It's a very good book. It actually has a lot of really great stuff in it. It's been helpful to me in a lot of ways. And in this expanded and revised edition, he includes a passage where he talks about like basically how he got to where he is, his spiritual journey. And he talks about an experience that's very common to meditators that he calls in the Theravadan style, the arising and passing away, which is where you, you cross a kind of bioenergetic threshold. And a lot of people mistake it for enlightenment or some kind of final enlightenment. But what really is, is cracking the door open on something much, much larger. It has a lot to do with, you know, the awakening of kundalini energy. It, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that people talk about it. But basically, his argument is that once you have this experience, you get your ticket punched. And whether you like it or not, you were on this ride. You were going to be going through certain predictable stages of um, ascent and descent, and descent often into some pretty nasty realms that the Theravadans call the Dukkananas, or the knowledges of suffering which Ingram likes to call the dark after St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul. Anyway, his narration of his own spiritual journey has a lot to do with him crossing the A&P, as he calls it, the arising and passing away early when he was like 15 and kind of by accident. And his point is that this is nothing very special. This happens to people all the time. You know, people drop acid and cross the A&P. People have weird dreams where they cross the A&P. But his point is that once he did, by accident, he was on this motherfucking ride and he was deep in the knowledges of suffering and constantly trying to find ways to address it and his natural and is is he's very straightforward in saying you know I'm a gearhead achievement oriented guy like in his daily life he's an MD he's a medical doctor who works in the emergency room and uh, his approach is always to try and instrumentalize everything to find the technique that would help him get to the next stage. And you can read this, and I think a lot of the tech bros who've been adopting meditation as a kind of wetware productivity hack, yeah. uh, which is a perfect example of this culture of control that you're talking about. Right, a lot what Zizek is talking about. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of them probably read either Ingram's book or any number of books rather like it that have been published since looking for techniques. But what's interesting is Ingram's very humanizing idea of like him being defeated ultimately in this uh, attempt to contain, to control his own suffering by like schematizing it and coming up with uh, the techniques to, to deal with it. And he talks about going to India and um, volunteering in clinics, including Mother Teresa's clinic, which is a hospice for the most indigent, the most um, down and out imaginable people, a place for them to die. And he's working in these places where suffering is massive, and he's approaching it as a as a physician, doing certain things to help. And he's and he came to realize at a certain point that he, by trying to engage in a kind of like selfless and spiritualized endeavor of helping the poor in India, it was like this weird way that he was still kind of trying to keep all the suffering at bay. And he tells a story that I find really moving about, you know, when the, you know, these dikes, these kind of seawalls he, he had erected without really being aware of it to keep all this suffering out, like keeping the ocean at bay, the way the moment the dikes started to collapse and he started realizing that he had to get real with suffering and a point at which 
you know, paradoxical. Yeah, where you had to yeah. get religion, even though, yeah. you know, it sort of was religious, but like now, now really where that yeah. shit is getting real. So I'm going to read you a passage from this. It says, I remember the heroin addicts who lived in the alley just outside the hotel door. There were typically five or ten of them, long-haired, naked, skinny as rails, covered in dirt and ash, and covered in sores and infections by dirty needles. I recall some lying there, high as kites, others clearly in withdrawal, shaking and vomiting, others shooting each other up with little brownish vials of cheap heroin. What I noticed is that nearly everyone else in India seemed to want to interact with tourists, except the heroin addicts. They didn't look at us, didn't seem to see us at all, didn't ever say anything to us, as though they were existing in some parallel ghost realm that was only loosely connected to this one. I can't help but think of them two decades later whenever I hear the phrase, hungry ghost realm. Hmm. I remember coming home from the street clinic one day, and there was one of them lying on the ground with his arm deep in the open sewer that ran along the alley, slowly crawling along, arm about two feet into the sewage, apparently looking for something. I was curious, and as the heroin addicts never interacted with us at all, I stopped to watch what he was doing. He ignored me and my curiosity entirely. For about five minutes, he felt along the bottom of the sewer, carefully, patiently, inching his naked body along the ground, and finally he stopped. A small smile crossed his face, and he pulled out a syringe from the bottom of that Calcutta sewage. He licked the bare needle, broke off the top of a small file he had concealed in his other hand, drew up, shot up right there, and lay back in a daze on the street, dirty needle still hanging from his arm. It struck me that when you were shooting up with a needle from the bottom of a Calcutta sewer, you have likely fallen much lower than you ever thought you could fall. I wondered at that point who he had been before, what his parents felt about him, what any children he had might have felt about him, and how much longer he could possibly live. That snapshot of his suffering would be driven even more deeply home some months later. I was again coming home from the clinic and saw the same man sitting on the street, cross-legged and crying, tears streaming down his face. In his hand was a single white index card that was perfectly clean. He had managed to gather seven extremely small pieces of colored chalk in a little pile on the ground to his side and had drawn a rainbow on the index card. He was staring at the rainbow and crying his eyes out. I realized there was likely nothing at all I could do for this man. But something in his weeping humanized him for me, such that months of being in shock could no longer be kept at bay. It felt like that man had torn my heart out, as if suddenly the pain I had somehow managed to numb partially so that I could do the work and live as I was living came crashing in with the full force of a tsunami. The hairs on my arms still rise now over 20 years later when I think of him. I'm deeply grateful to that naked, dying, addicted artist, though I would greatly prefer that he hadn't been dying in misery in the streets of Calcutta and that I hadn't needed something like that to shock me into realizing what was going on. Hmm. My God. So what is it that Trump's control? I think it's just absolutely brilliant that you brought this up because what breaks the system of control is suffering. Yeah, it's true. This is the beauty. This is the power of that Buddhist truth that existence is suffering. 
the whole doctrine of control, which, I mean, come on, we don't need any more proof that Burroughs was right when he wrote yeah. Naked Lunch and, and saw this coming. We live in a society of control. We live in a society where our thoughts now are being controlled. And I'm not a paranoid. I'm just talking about the stuff any one of us can read in any magazine about the latest studies about the effects of social media right. on people and on democracy. We are we live in a society that's absolutely completely driven by this will to control. And it, it applies at microcosmically and macrocosm. It applies at the societal level with and economically, these corporate structures that, that try to control our us, our bodies and minds, the political systems, the tax schemes, everything. And it's it's in every one of us too. It's it's the nature of our spirituality today. It's the nature of the religions that we invent. It's all about control. Even maybe Slaughter Dyke's concept of anthropotechnics is ultimately rooted in a kind of doctrine of control. But what all these doctrines are predicated on a limited apprehension of the real. The real yeah. is exactly what escapes control. Mm -hmm. The real is the kernel of chaos in everything that precludes control at every level. The things, there's always a wild card in the deck. There's always a way in which things slip out of your control. And yep. this is not just a kind of random add-on to the world. In my opinion, it's the very core of reality is that yep. chaos, that unpredictability. And it, it's that that means that existence is suffering because the mind is always trying to get a handle on the situation and can't, by definition, ever get a handle on it. And that's why existence is suffering, whether you're part of the Brahmin class or that dude in the Calcutta gutter. Yeah. It, we are all suffering. Yep. And our yen to control is a symptom of our suffering. This is why I'm so skeptical of people like Osho. Ultimately, any institution that tells me they can solve my suffering, they yep. can't. The very desire to overcome suffering is a symptom of suffering. Yep. The expression of a cure to suffering is a symptom of suffering. Everything is a symptom of suffering. And if there's one thing that... Well, actually, I want to say this. I don't know if you'll agree, but it seems to me that what's going on in Buddhism is it's not so much the transcendence of suffering. Mm -mm. It's the inclusion of suffering in the dance of existence. Yeah, it's the exactly. acceptance of things as they are. And, and this is what we need to do as a, as a culture. We need to accept things as they are and, and, and our drive to control. And all these gurus are offering us cures to the human condition it's a doomed proposition it's just yeah. like it seems like the only thing that we can do as a culture is fall on our knees and and yeah. realize something yeah. that we have been trying hard not to realize it's funny because i have a friend here in uh, bloomington who's a zen teacher not a zen priest but a zen teacher who actually works at the university he works in music education his name is frank diaz i know he listens to the show so hey good looking out frank Frank is a, one of the coolest motherfuckers of all time. And it's interesting because he's a Zen Buddhist who's like, you know, you're quite right when you say that a passion for interest in Asian philosophies and religions is very much something that you see among elite classes. And Frank is a, 
a guy who comes from pre- very like uh, pretty unprivileged under underprivileged background as a, uh, a guy from a Cuban exile family living in Florida. Uh, and growing up pretty hard. And for him, sand was something that addressed kind of oceanic suffering in his own life uh, that he was very fortunate to stumble on early in his life. And I remember when I first met him, you know, like he found out that I was also a Zen Buddhist and we had lunch and we were talking. And uh, I was telling him about how I had myself kind of withdrawn a lot from my own sort of Zen Buddhist commitments because I think, as I've said more than once on this show, I'd kind of dug in on this idea without really knowing it, that I was transcending suffering, that that was the goal. I mean, it's like what I was saying before, the arousing of the Bodhi mind, you're probably on some bullshit. What gets you in the door of the Zendos or the church or what have you is probably at least partially bullshit view. And mine was too. Mine was total bullshit. The idea that I was going to somehow transcend my own suffering, transcend the suffering of the world. I was going to get somehow a, like a, my ticket punched out of here, you know, that I was going to, um, find a cure for the human condition. And, uh, I said to my friend Frank, I was like, you know, what I realized when I stopped showing up at this temple that I'd been attending, it was when I realized that uh, there's no cure for the human condition. Right. I really, really learned that. And he, <laughs> and he said something like, oh, well, you've, you finally learned something then. <laughs> something like that, you know. I, I don't think he quite put it that way, but just sort of like, yes, that was always the point. Yeah. That was always the thing that you had to find out is that there's no cure for the human condition. It's sort of like, okay, now we can begin. Right. You are not going to get anywhere until this shit stops being anthropotechnics. This shit stops being hacks, tricks that you can make your mind do. And, you know, you say, like, get down on your knees or sit down. Just get down with suffering. Don't make it about something. Don't try to turn it into something else. Just, yeah. And, 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 you know, let the world be what it is. And yet that can really easily turn into quietism. It can turn into exactly what neoliberal modernity wants us to say to ourselves, to rehearse to ourselves, that we'll accept injustices and be like, okay, yeah, sure, fine. But that is emphatically not what it is. But, you know, this is the thing that's actually a little bit of optimism. You know, you hear about tech bros who are appropriating meditation, and this seems to be the most grotesque form of what we might call cultural appropriation or some kind of religious appropriation, taking these technologies of commodification, meditation, yeah, and using them for your own power and gain. And I actually had this exchange on Twitter with, like, Eric Davis and um, Matt Carden. And what I said was, you know, the thing is, though, that if you sit, if you meditate, you might start off thinking like, I'm going to become so effective in my business now that I'm meditating. But what might actually happen is that you might actually start to suffer. And you might yeah. find, and, and like, you know, Daniel Ingram, like suddenly realizing all of the suffering that he'd been trying to keep at bay, just watching this junkie crying over an index card with like a crudely drawn rainbow on it. That is shit that you can't hack. 
That shit you can't dope out. It will break in on you. And that is the wild card. And you can imagine, I'm not saying it's likely, I'm certainly not saying it's gonna happen, but it is always possible that even some crass asshole appropriating a meditative quote-unquote technology for the most materialistic possible ends might actually do it well enough to do what that shit was intended to do, which is to get you up close and personal with that first, last, and most essential truth that life is suffering. Right. And the reversal that can happen then is tremendous because we've been using the word play negatively in this show, talking about how the kind of elite will play with ideas, appropriate things and play with them. But what we're saying now is that all that play is actually really, really hard work to avoid that truth, right, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you realize that truth, that life is suffering? I've had a few moments in my life where that truth came at me hard. It's in that moment that things become a question of life and death. It's in that moment that things become serious. It's at that moment that we touch on what Paul Tillich, the theologian, called ultimate concern. The big, big question. And in a sense, it's at that point that we can really start to play. It's at that point that yeah. we don't, we're not working so hard to avoid the truth. It's at that point that we can, having accepted it, a very simple truth, not a big revelation, really, just a simple truth we all deep down know, just accepting. We can relax into it, and then maybe life becomes a field of possibilities. Maybe then life can become, as we say, an aesthetic project in the good sense, in the deepest sense of the term, where it's about creation. It's about making something. It's about becoming something. And uh, maybe everything that happened before that moment was just an attempt to avoid being what each of us is, you know, being what we are and becoming what we can be. So maybe, you know, there's a kind of transmutation of work and play. Maybe that's at that point that we go from what James Carr's calls a finite game into the infinite game of existence. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>